Hello and welcome all of you people. I don't remember all the words that Sam usually says to Extra Milestone, a bonus podcast of the Cinemaholics main show where every week we, and by we, I mean lots of Cinemaholics contributors, we talk about a different classic film that happens to be celebrating an anniversary, a film anniversary. We call these films Extra Milestones because we think they went the extra mile. It's a milestone. You get it. And this is one of the most extra milestones we've ever selected. And that's because we're talking about a film that came out June 30th, 1960, a film that has been my favorite film, one of two favorite films of mine, I should say, since I was probably in middle or high school, around the time I saw it for the third or fourth time. And that film is The Apartment. And here to discuss The Apartment, movie-wise, love-wise, laugh-wise, or otherwise, we of course have... Julia Tatey. Julia, how are you doing? I'm doing so well. I'm feeling like you're trying to one-up me by how much you love this mm. movie because it's one of my top three favorite Ooh. movies of all time. <laughs> look, and look, I, look. I get that you watched it in <laughs> high school. I get that you watched it so many years ago. But listen, I have watched mm-hmm, it three mm-hmm. times in the last three years. Probably will watch it many more times in the years to come. I adore this movie. I love this movie. I'm glad that we both love this movie because I think it's going to be a very love-induced conversation about all the reasons why we admire this Billy Wilder film so, so much. Now, before we get started, also have to point out that Sam Noland wasn't able to host this week, so he entrusted Extra Milestone in our hands. Hopefully, we will do him proud for this Extra Milestone, which is actually our 25th extra milestone and we picked quite the movie to i mean we didn't do it intentionally as a 25th but i I definitely think it is a nice piece of trivia it makes me pretty happy that for this conversation we don't have some naysayer here who's gonna tell us ah the apartment's not that good no none of that we're just gonna naysayers be locked out of the apartment honestly if you're a the apartment naysayer We are locking the door. We're throwing away the key. (laughs) You can head out and you won't get the key back for any time you need a room. That's right. And I'm, again, I I think we will be having a pretty fun conversation about this movie, an insightful one. I definitely want to keep it open for maybe somebody who is aware of this movie or they've been told like, okay, this is one of the movies you need to see. This is a real cinema right here, whatever it is. And maybe we can make the case for like, yes, please watch this movie. And we are going to talk about it in pretty critical detail. Uh, We're going to go over some scenes. We're going to go over where this movie comes from. But really, we're going to talk about why this movie connects with us so much. I mean, this is a movie that came out 60 years ago. It's kind of a miracle that for me, I know so many people who watch this movie for the first or 20th time and they just love it. And I want to get to the bottom of that. So let's kick things off. Let's hear a little bit from the trailer for The Apartment This trailer showed up in cinemas back in 1960. And beware, there are some things here. If you've never seen the movie and you don't want to be spoiled on any of it, you should not keep listening. Definitely check out The Apartment, come back, and then listen from this point on. But let's hear the trailer. A very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl, and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kublik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Ingredient number two, a brilliant cast. Jack Lemmon in a delightful role which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine, whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray, this is a Fred McMurray you've never seen before. You know, you see a girl a couple of times a week just for laughs, and right away they think you're going to divorce your wife. <laughs> I ask you, is that, is that fair? No, sir, it's very unfair, especially to your wife. Yeah. Ingredient number three, Billy Wilder. There's nothing quite like that Billy Wilder, some like it hot kind of laughter. Are we dressing for dinner? You know, just come as you are. So you're pretty good with that racket. You should see my backhand. Where'd you see me serve the meatballs? <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
Mildred, he's at it again. Let's get into it. Let's let's find out what, what the story is behind this buddy boy Baxter, CC Baxter, played by Jack Lemon, and one of Billy Wilder's most celebrated films. A lot of people say that Billy Wilder's best film is maybe it's Sunset Boulevard, maybe it's Double Indemnity, maybe it's Some Like It Hot, a film we talked about an extra milestone before. For my money, his masterpiece, his classic film, is easily The Apartment. Which my first question for you, Julia, as we, we got to get this out of the way, what genre is The Apartment? Oh my gosh, I feel like, you know, I feel like it straddles a couple of different genres. I think it could be a romantic comedy, definitely, I think is the first genre that comes up first and foremost for a lot of people. Um, It's definitely a drama, given a lot of the heightened situations that a lot of characters fall into it could also be a screwball comedy given how some of those heightened moments might not carry over as serious to a lot of audience members i can completely see that there's a lot of very fast-paced dialogue that is especially done so so well by jack lemon and fred mcmurray both of whom worked with Billy Wilder, Fred McMurray, obviously had worked with him previously in Double Indemnity, Indemnity, which (laughs) is such a straight... I mean, if you're looking for the blueprint of the film noir, look no further than Billy Wilder's uh, Double Indemnity. Um, But yeah, I think that it definitely straddles those three um, genres, subgenres pretty well. But personally, for me, I find it to be kind of a romantic dramedy. It mixes drama really well. I think that yeah. some yeah, I think that one of the best characters, my favorite character from the film and we'll definitely get into our admiration of this character because I know both both of us love her so so much. My favorite character is Fran Kubelik who is pay, played so so honestly with so much genuine nature, with so much kindness and thoughtfulness by Shirley MacLaine. Um, she really brings, or that character really brings a lot of the emotional crux of the film. I think that she's the most developed character. I think that she is the most emotionally introspective character of the film. Absolutely. And I think that Jack Lemmon and Fred McMurray, you know, they're both kind of these binary figures in this office that they work in. But they're also foils of each other you know there's this guy that jack lemon plays cc baxter our buddy boy Hmm. who is just trying to do everything that he can to make it in his workplace something that i feel like so many of us can relate to of just trying to be the best do the best do what you can on the side in order to get a leg up and then fred mcmurray who is this hyper masculine presents this toxic masculinity this verbose, unneeding, unnecessary figure who is just so emotionally manipulative to Shirley MacLaine's Frank Kubelik. And it's just such a fascinating character study with these two men. But I believe, really believe that Frank Kubelik, who is performed so beautifully by Shirley MacLaine, is really the emotional crux of the film and gives a lot of that drama that we really need injected into this film to have that emotional weight while fred mcmurray and jack lemon kind of have their witty banter and back and forth and jack lemon is this really kind of funny almost quasi jimmy stewart like good guy in the office really see i was going to compare fred mcmurray at more to the jimmy stewart presence at least and in this movie of course like no, like you wouldn't say that Jimmy Stewart would be the antagonist, or if he was, it would probably be against type. But I don't know. I compare Jack Lemmon a little bit in the same way Billy Wilder does to Chaplin a bit. Um, Billy Wilder oh, always yeah. said, you know, yeah, Lemon is my chaplain, which maybe that's mm. overstating things. But yes, when it comes to his comedic timing, his ability to switch from drama to comedy, like in a pinch, um, especially because watching this movie every single time, I always go into it and I'm like, why do I like this character? He's doing things I don't like and he's making decisions and he's the dialogue he's saying is so terrible. Like a terrible person says things like this and treats Shirley MacLaine's character this way. 
But for some reason, he brings a heart to it in his own way through his mannerisms, through his slight performance ticks. And that's why every time I watch The Apartment, I, fi- I find myself falling for this schmuck just like uh, Fran seems to. Yeah, I definitely agree that I think where I come across with the Jimmy Stewart nature is just the wholesomeness of it. You know that it isn't. Oh, sure. It's not. Um, uh, how should I say this? There isn't an antagonistic guide to his character perspective. You know, I think that the one point where he, where Cece Baxter really loses the audience, is when Frank Kublik is. L- you know, we'll get to it, but I don't want to ruin it for that many people. I don't want to get into spoilers, but there is a moment where CeCe Baxter does kind of lose the audience in terms of their identification with the protagonist because he's definitely presented that way. He's presented as this by the numbers, wholesome guy who seems to just be doing his job and doing everything he can to get a leg up in his office, which who could blame him, especially considering the post-World War II, 1960s sort of desks in a row, timestamp sort of situation that they were living in that some people might still be living in now who is just trying to get his life together, get that corner office, and then know that he has finally made it. And then he can have kind of this free-for-all life that someone like J.F. Sheldrake, who's Fred McMurray's character, kind of has with the moral compass. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because I want to talk more about this character. But for those who haven't seen the movie, we definitely should set the stage a little bit. So we've talked about the cast and kind of what brings this movie together emotionally. But okay, what's the plot? This movie begins with some voiceover narration, kind of a risky move. It's something that can be seen as sort of tropey. It's not like critics at the time were super nice to this movie anyway. It was kind of mixed at first, but then it ended up getting nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. And of course, it's gone on to be quite uh, well remembered, as we know. But Anyway, it does start with the voiceover narration, and we immediately find out this Baxter is an insurance guy. You know, so they chose a very you know workmanlike job for him, and the idea of insurance kind of plays out throughout the whole movie. The idea of like what is this man really worth? Um, Everyone is just sort of a number. One of the big themes of this movie that I really enjoy is just that back and forth of you know. Are people human beings? Are they menches? You know, or are they people who are going to get took? And there's a lot of drama in that situation. There's a lot of that that drives the romance, it drives uh, the misunderstandings that happen between characters. So I like that the film gets it right out of the way that, yes, he works in an insurance company. It's not a flashy job. It's not something that seems like immediately valuable. It's a job that's all about sort of selling yourself a bit, which, of course, plays into, as we quickly learn, that Baxter, who wants people to call him Bud and his higher ups call him Buddy Boy all the time. He loans out his apartment, which is in the Upper West Side, to a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of senior coworkers, who a bunch they, of men, a bunch of dudes, and bunch they are dudes. a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of toxic boys who are wanting to find a spot to have affairs because they're married men. And uh, in this time and age, I looked this up because I was curious. I was like, well, you know. Why don't they do hotels? Are they that cheap? Uh, I think that is part of it, that they are pretty cheap. And here's this guy who will loan out his apartment for free. And in exchange, as you've kind of teased already, he's doing this to get ahead because if he loans out his apartment to these these guys, maybe they're going to help him out in the future. And that's that's kind of how we get introduced to him. We're kind of like, ah, he's a bit of a schmuck. He's, he's a bit of a guy who's sort of doing unsavory things in order to get a promotion because you know we see little moments in the movie where whenever he does tries to do like his actual job nobody seems to care (laughs) and i thought that was a pretty funny wrinkle of the film especially when you notice it on rewatch definitely and i mean you know especially going back to that immediate voiceover that you talked about it's very clear that this cc baxter he's a knowledgeable guy he's incredibly aware i think that there are actually moments where he talks to fran kubelik and he's able to recite the address where she lives and it's it's just a very fascinating fascinating character study of this person who is very clearly overworked and honestly i think that we can even consider those hours where he rents out his apartment to the higher ups, the supervisors that he works for. We consider that overtime for the kind of work that he's doing just to get ahead in his job. It's such a fascinating character study. I think that it could transfer so 
easily to a lot of situations that people are working in nowadays in corporate America. And minus the elevator girls, uh, it's it's such a, a, a such a wonderful um, workplace romantic dramedy. I think that that's what I always keep going back to is that it's this one building that's containing these three people, this one institution. Yeah, it feels working, so small of, too. <laughs> yeah, of working under capitalism and just trying to make a buck, make a buck, get somewhere. Even Fran Kublik talks about, you know, trying to find a place for herself atop the elevator girls at one point in passing. I think it's not taken with too much um, seriousness, but it's, it's really, it's an intense world that this CC Baxter has to live in. And that feeling that you have to give the extra mile or go the extra mile in order to just get to a place where you feel like you have some agency and, and some control over your circumstances it's i think that it's i think one of the reasons why it has stood the test of time and why so many people still love it is because a lot of those circumstances still feel very prescient and very contemporary for a lot of people right because we're we're sort of sold this idea that all right if you work hard if you're really good at what you do that's all you really need for success and i always enjoy a movie that sort of points the flaws in that and says, ah, that's not really how it is. We all know that. And and does it in a very disarming way, in a reasonable way, in a way that can start discussions with people about, yeah, haven't you ever been in a situation like this where your promotion wasn't really about you? It was about you doing things for other people that were unrelated to the job. And so I actually have a, a clip here from the movie, Julia, that we could play that maybe kind of ties into what we're talking about. Let's listen. Sorry to bother you, buddy boy, but the little lady forgot her galoshes. Mr. Kirkby, I don't like to complain, but you were supposed to be out of here by eight. I know, buddy boy, I know, but those things don't always run on schedule like a Greyhound bus. Well, I don't mind in the summer, but on a rainy night. I haven't had any dinner yet. Sure, sure. Um, oh. Uh, look, kid, I, I put in a good word for you with Sheldrake and personnel. Mr. Sheldrake? That's right. We were discussing our department, manpower-wise, promotion-wise. I told him what a bright boy you are. You're always on the lookout for young executives. <laughs> Thank you. You're on your way up, buddy boy. You're also out of liquor. Oh, I know. Mr. Eichelberger, mortgage and loan department. Last night he had a little Halloween party. Yeah, here. Well, lay in some vodka and some vermouth and put my name on it. Yes, Mr. Kirkaby. You still owe me for the last two bottles. <laughs> yeah, I'll pay you on Friday. Uh, what I love about that too is that, you know, they don't pay him back. <laughs> they just take oh, advantage of this guy, you know, and it, it's so sad to see, but he doesn't seem to really notice it. And it doesn't really seem to notice that he's being pressured in a way that's pretty messed up, <laughs> especially if you're watching it with modern eyes. But even in the time, I think that this was a pretty scandalous movie for just like the, you know, adulterous nature of it and what it was saying in, very, in a very provocative way about a workplace culture that at the time was very, very well defended by people. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that I actually thought of based on our previous conversation before we even went into the clip was this idea of paying your dues, you know, and that is such a it's it's this idea that has been embedded in so many people's minds, especially under this capitalistic economic um, situation that we're all in under this country and having to feel like we have to not just work but work even harder in order to attain the kind of position that we want, but not just the position. It means that we're getting the respect that we want. It seems like those two things are mutually exclusive under that kind of capitalistic, and especially during that time period. I mean, this film came out in, what, 1960? This was still after yeah. the World War II boom. Everyone was ready to go to work, to get back to work, to continue to feed into this economy that had such a huge boom, and everyone was experiencing the kind of fruits of the labor that so many people had given to it. And this idea of these people gave so much you need to give the same was kind of passed down generationally into people who went back to work following World War II. And it's so fascinating to kind of see this circumstance in the apartment where this one man is willing to go such a distance. And I mean, 
such a distance with like 18 yeah. views and the such and yeah order out in the to... cold for hours exactly and... <laughs> within the first 20 minutes we see the lengths that this young man is willing to go in order to procure himself possible just not even the opportunity to move up in the ranks but just the chance yeah he has to trust their word Exactly. And the fact of the matter is that even after that opening scene that we see with him standing out in the cold waiting for this this adulterous man and his mistress to leave, you know, even after all of that, he's not guaranteed to move up in the ranks at his office. It has to go through this entire narrative in order for him to actually find a place or find the chutzpah in order to say, <laughs> you know what, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. But I also want to give a shout out to, you know, there's a beautiful musical interlude that you played that the music was actually done by Adolf Deutsch, who yeah. actually earned his very first Academy Award nomination for Best Original Score for this film. He went on to win eight, three Oscars for his work in Oklahoma, in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and in Annie Get Your Gun. All three of those were movie musicals during the height of this kind of golden age in Hollywood and I just think the music is also kind of what brings me into the movie and as soon as I heard those first few tones from that clip that you played I just fell mm -hmm. right, right back into that black and white space into that really nice apartment I think we should talk about how nice CC Baxter's apartment is in New right. York nothing fancy but cozy for a bachelor as someone who lives in New York it's really it's all oh, that I mean, I would give anything to strain my pasta with a tennis racket in order to live in a, <laughs> an apartment like that. Yeah, it really was a different time, too, just in the sense that back then that is what would be considered like cozy, but it's so spacious and the furniture is really nice. And of course, it's all set dressing for the sake of the film. And, you know, I, I've always likened the apartment itself to representing Baxter. You know, I kind of said earlier that his job sort of suggests the idea that he's loaning himself out to others. That's really what this is, because the apartment is supposed to be a place where he is supposed to be healed, where he is supposed to be resting and being himself and his authentic self. But he loans that out to other people just to get ahead. Yeah, I really feel like thinking back to it a little bit more. It's a very cluttered space which is very kind of odd for this kind of bachelor figure who you really don't think, you know, he's living by himself. He doesn't have a lot of people to entertain. He's working all the time. Why would he have a lot of people to entertain? And yet he's, you know, with maybe these extra bucks that he's getting from his bonuses, he's kind of sprucing up the place to make it more amiable for supervisors, higher ups right. to enjoy in order that he can kind of secure himself a space in his company in the future for him to just be like, this is my space now and no one else's. It's really fascinating to look at the set design of that space. But then it's just so, I just love watching Jack Lemon just strain that pasta with a tennis racket. It's one of my favorite images from that movie. It, it really is great. Um, I love the, just his comedic timing too, how quick he is on the uptake. Um, I, I know we were talking about this off the air, but us both being both tennis former tennis players and well i'm a former tennis player i guess you're still a professional as far as i can oh tell. yeah absolutely <laughs> tennis enthusiast uh it, yeah it's one of my favorite scenes yeah you know i i do want to get to the music at some point because there is plenty to discuss there this is one of my one of the reasons it's one of my favorite films is the way it uses its music in the story like there is a story behind the specific arrangement here um before we get to that i i last thing i'll say i about that some of those earlier scenes the thing I love about Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond uh, as screenwriters is how they take these very pathetic moments and they make comedy out of it. They make light of it so that you don't feel like emotionally manipulated. You just feel like somebody is like talking to you like a person about something that is kind of depressing in a lot of ways. That specific moment is just seeing him drink like the backwash of the liquor in his water and saying cheers um, because he's literally living off the scraps of his bosses. Uh, that, that always resonates with me quite a bit because it is a moment that should just make me feel so sorry for this guy. But instead, I kind of instead feel connected to him just as a real person. And since this is a movie that's all about you know, connecting with people in an authentic way. 
I think it's a pretty effective way to start out your movie. And this first half of the movie that we're talking about, definitely to what you're saying, it is more of the workplace comedy aspect of it. It hasn't really turned into the romantic drama comedy yet, which is so classic Wilder in his directing because he's so good at genre bending. And this is a very experimental film in some ways because of how by the halfway point, which we'll talk about, it turns into a completely different movie in some ways. Uh, it does kind of lean more heavy into the romance than it does previously, but let's talk about that romance because it's not too long before we're finally introduced to Shirley MacLaine's character. Now, at this point in her career, Shirley MacLaine had not worked with Billy Wilder quite yet. She would work with him again a few years later and Jack Lemmon again. But at this point in 1960, she had been an actress for about five years um, we, of course, know Shirley MacLaine. She's still alive today. She was in a film as recently as last year. Uh, I've told you, Julia Tatey, in confidence that Shirley MacLaine has been one of my role models since childhood. Um, I am a fan of her quite a bit. I know some people kind of make fun of the new age spirituality stuff, but I think it is very fun. But anyway, <laughs> all that aside, uh, we finally get introduced to her as an elevator operator. And Julia, guess what? I may have a clip for that as well. I can't wait to hear it. Morning, Mr. Kirkland. Morning, Miss Kubelik. Morning, Mr. Baxter. Morning, Miss Kubelik. That's all. Take it away. Watch the door, please. Blasting off. What did you do to your hair? It was making me nervous, so I chopped it off. Big mistake, huh? No, I sort of like it. You've got a lulu. Huh? Yeah, better not get too close. I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Actually Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? <laughs> well, that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Should have stayed in bed this morning. You should have stayed in bed last night. From the get-go... I, I just find this character so relatable. Like it's just the fact that like chopping it off. And of course that kind of hints at some things that are very specific to her character later on. But yeah, what do you think of our introduction to Fran Kublik here? Oh my gosh. I, I love Fran Kublik as a character. She's one of my favorite characters in cinema. And, you know, I can't give enough credit to Shirley MacLaine's performance in this movie. It's one of my absolute favorites. This is this performance actually garnered Shirley MacLaine her second Oscar nomination for Best Actress in a Leading Role. She wouldn't win her first Oscar until 1984 for Best Actress in a Leading Role for the film Terms of Endearment, which she starred alongside Deborah Winger, a film that I have seen absolutely wrecked me and sent me into an emotional <laughs> spiral. But this movie also, with her performance as Frank Kubelik, I think that there is so much actually in that little scene that you played for us. I want to first talk about this kind of snarky comment that she makes about her hair. So I don't know yes. if a lot of people know about this, but in the 1920s, a lot of hairdressers discouraged young women from bobbing their hair and cutting it so short because it would make women look boyish, which actually wouldn't lend young men to be attracted to them because it wouldn't make them look feminine and they wouldn't have long hair. And so that was one of the first things that I thought about whenever I saw Frank Kublik with her really short hair. She wanted to look boyish. She didn't want a lot of other men in the office looking at her. She only had eyes and wanted the only eyes on her to be one particular man in the office, which we will get into later on in the conversation. I also think that it demonstrates her absolutely quick wit, which I really don't think that we can not only limit that to Shirley MacLaine's performance, because it's grade A from the get-go, but we also have to give a lot of credit to Billy Wilder's writing and directing. His writing has been known to be very fast-paced, kind of like a ping-pong tournament where it's just back and forth and back and forth between two or a couple of characters in a scene. And that scene that you just played for us when Cece Baxter meets Fran Kubelik, which are two characters who have been interacting before we as an audience are placed into this narrative have, they've been seeing each other every day. We understand that Cece Baxter has this really innocent, really boyish, very kind of non 
oh, what's the word? It's it's not non threatening in some it's ways. It's non threatening. It's a really non threatening crush. He's got a over crush, this young girl. little crush, and you. Why blame him? I mean. Exactly. I mean, it's it's really sweet. It's really innocent. We don't get the sense that this is a young man who feels like he's coming to his masculinity in order to manipulate it against this young woman. In fact, I feel kind of like this young woman has the upper hand over Cece Baxter in terms of her really quick brain, her very um, driven command over the language that she uses. I mean, I think one sequence that happens right after that scene that you played is that one of the men in the back of the elevator as he is exiting slaps her on her butt yeah. and she makes a frame with her fingers and she says, Mr. So-and-so, if you do that again, I'm just going to have to slam <laughs> the door on you and it's really great the way that i don't know if it was shirley mcclain's choice if it was billy wilder's choreography but she outlines the elevator and then puts her hand in the middle and the other hand on the side to show that she would just push the elevator on yeah. him and just close the doors <laughs> to him completely i think that especially during that time you know frank kubelik also represents a woman who had to put up with a lot bullshit from mm. a lot of men uh, working as an elevator girl just she's a grown woman and her title is elevator girl i mean that alone in and of itself it lends itself to this idea that this young woman young professional woman who has to deal with so much interact with so many different people throughout the day throughout the week is just placed into such a lower ranking when she is providing a service a service that at that time was incredibly essential for so many people, still essential for so many people. And she's treated like this. Oh, gosh, I don't even know. This... She's she's objectified and she's exactly. kind of condescended to you, but she owns the situation whenever that happens. Exactly. And honestly, she's the one with the gloves on her hand. She's the one with the fingers on the buttons. I wouldn't mess with Fran Kubelik in an <laughs> elevator knowing what Neither she knows I. at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, we should point out to you, you know, McLean in later years pointed out to people that in a lot of cases, Wilder was pretty not nice to her, uh, treated her very poorly on set. We hear this way too often about directors in this era of Hollywood still today, but hopefully to a lesser extent. But in those times, you know, just kind of terrorizing actresses in order to get performances out of them. And McLean has kind of hinted that a lot of this happened. They didn't let her ad lib. They were on her a lot about getting every single word of the script exactly right. And in some cases, people have speculated that that's probably because Wilder wanted a melancholic performance out of her or something that's like really bothering her to be shown on screen as if she couldn't have just done that anyway. And that's the thing that rubs me, of course. But regardless, I think McLean is able to just really pull a performance out of this that is so believable, that is so like filled with subtext that does get paid off later. And it's a great introduction. And I think that, I, you know, seeing the scene where they're all kind of like bun- bunched up in the elevator, I was like, you know, it's kind of kind of nice to see people actually being close to each other again, honestly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I miss people, places and things. <laughs> I know a lot of our listeners do, so hopefully, maybe in viewing the apartment, you can get some of that semblance of kind of normalcy back. Harken back to days when people did crowd themselves into elevators in order to get from one floor to the next. Yeah. We see a little bit more of this banter. Eventually, we do see things are looking up for Jack Lemon's character. At some point, he is able to kind of score a date with Fran, even though I think that she's very aloof with him. Clearly, she has other things on her mind, but she is kind of open-minded to the idea of, sure, I'll go with you to go see the music, man. But really, this is setting the stage for a big reveal in the movie, which is that the man that she is having an affair with happens to be Sheldrake, played by Fred McMurray, who is, of course, the boss who is basically basically told Jack Lemmon's character, hey, you know, I, I can give you that promotion you have been looking for and that's kind of where the drama starts to heat up now we were having a little bit of a a little a pre-discussion about this in the sense of is the apartment a, a christmas movie or is it a new year's eve movie and uh julia you you seem to be firmly on the side of news correct it's 
absolutely a New Year's Eve movie. I don't understand why this is even a debate. I don't see why this should be a discussion we're having on the airwaves so that people have to listen to it and take a side. I think it's so it's so clear to me that this film is a New Year's Eve film because the apex of the entire film, the moment where all of our hearts stop beating, happens on New Year's Eve. Right, right. Which we'll get to, of course. My my thing with Christmas movie and New Year's Eve movies is I think that there are some movies that are categorically New Year's. There are some movies that are categorically Christmas. I think this one is both in a lot of ways, but I think the Christmas part, it's kind of like the overall holiday season. And I just label it a certain way. But yes, maybe that's the my... melancholy <laughs> of Christmas. I definitely understand your perspective there. Absolutely. Not the uh, hopefulness of the new year, but definitely the <laughs> melancholy of Christmas. If that's what you're going for, then sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I say all that to set the stage for a scene that happens during Christmas party um, at this point, Baxter, he seems to think that, you know, everything's going great. Uh, he's got the promotion, he's got the office, and he's feeling a little confident. He's three drinks in, and we're in this office party, a uh, Christmas office party, and he decides, you know what, this is my chance to maybe make things right with the woman who stood me up. And he doesn't realize at this point, of course, that the reason she stood him up is because she has been with the very man who has been occupying his apartment. Thank you. But you were avoiding me. What gave you that idea? In the last six weeks, you've only been in my elevator once, and you didn't take off your hat. Well, as a matter of fact, I was rather hurt that night you stood me up. I don't blame you. It was unforgivable. I forgive you. Well, you shouldn't. You couldn't help yourself. I mean, when you're having a drink with one man, you can't suddenly walk out on him because you're having another date with another man. You did the only decent thing. I wouldn't be too sure. Just because I wear a uniform, that doesn't make me a real scout. Miss Kublik, one doesn't get to be a second administrative assistant around here unless he's a pretty good judge of character. And as far as I'm concerned, your tops, I mean, decency-wise and otherwise-wise. <laughs> Cheers. One more. Oh, I shouldn't drink while I'm driving. You're so right. By the power vested in me, I herewith declare this elevator out of order. Shall we join the natives? Why not? They seem friendly enough. Don't you believe it? After a while, there'll be human sacrifices. White collar workers tossed into the computing machines and punched full of those little square holes. <laughs> Before we uh, move on, because the scene gets better and better, of course, uh, I, I do want to. I do want to ask you this question about uh, just Christmas in general, Julia. Like for a Christmas movie, you mentioned like kind of the melancholy, but what what about this scene in particular? Because at this point in the scene, we see that Fran is learning the terrible news. Uh, terrible news in the sense of like, it's more like gossip from the secretary who at several points in this movie, I should just quickly, quickly mention, uh, I, I really related to her snoopiness in some instances, um, just kind of like hanging on the phone calls and peer and, uh, you know, eavesdropping on things. But she tells Fran at this point that, oh, I had an affair with Sheldrake as well. So did this person, this person. And suddenly the scene dramatically shifts to being very depressing. And then we're going to play the rest of this clip in a moment. But, uh, you know, the cluelessness of Baxter in this point is kind of the point of the scene. Well, before we even get into the Christmas movie and Christmas party spirit, I want to go back and kind of uh, challenge your vernacular a little bit. I think that Jay, Jeff Sheldrake is the one who's having the affairs with these women. These women are not having affairs with Sheldrake. Ah, yes. Good point. Yeah. He is the married man in this situation. He has kids. These young women kind of are in the same position as C.C. Baxter, where they feel like if an older man who is an upper management notices me, likes me, treats me well, if I give him something, he might give me something in return. And obviously, we have seen films before that have honestly played out that situation in more tragic ways. Honestly, the apartment might be able to fall into one of those categories as well. But I just wanted to challenge your vernacular a little bit so we can kind of shift the dialogue and recognize yeah. that Sheldrake is the one who's having the affairs with these young women. These young women are victims of his power and his toxic masculinity, and they are not the ones who are completely complicit in those affairs as well. 
And there's even it's good that you bring that up because there's even a point where it's not like Fran knew that going into this relationship. I mean, they make it pretty clear that, uh, like you said, she's a victim. She's kind of with him under false pretenses and then eventually figures out for herself that, no, he's stringing me along. He's actually married and so forth. Um, So, yes, thank you for bringing that up and uh, correcting that. And as we move into that scene where things start to take a turn for the uh, pretty pretty, I don't really want to say dark, but they definitely go into a sense where the movie is shifting into its its real drama, the real point where Baxter kind of comes down to earth on what's really going on. I, I kind of wanted to point out how it, just the fact that like, if you look at his character in this instance, I, I was curious because you brought up earlier how he seems like a nice guy. He seems like he's actually in this to be with someone, to have a real love story. But what he's doing with his apartment and trying to get ahead, I sort of get the feeling that he's on a certain path where he will probably become just like Sheldrake. He'll become just like Dobish and all the other guys who are married and had their love stories or whatever, but they prioritized work so much over themselves and not being true to themselves that now they they are lonely. And like we find out from Sheldrake himself that he claims the reason he does all this is because deep down he feels he doesn't have real connection with people. And he kind of frames it around like he doesn't even understand why. And I think this movie is trying to say that it's because he constantly put work and moving up the ladder and and this vague form of success over other people. And I view Baxter as a person on that trajectory, but then he has to learn for himself. No, I'm not going to do that. And that's kind of where the movie finds its theme. But do you think that's a correct reading of the film? Yeah, sure. I think that's a really fascinating rating of the film. I mean, it goes back to this whole, and I don't want to get too, too introspective and too potentially anti-capitalist, but at the same time, I feel like that's the whole sense of this capitalistic ideology that has been placed into the so many minds in this country, even in the early 1960s. You know, we're taught this idea that you have to succeed, and in order to succeed, you either have to pay your dues or... you have to pay your dues in some way. For all we know, Sheldrake's biography prior to working in this office was that he served in World War II. So why wouldn't you want to offer this man who has given everything to this country a little apartment so he can have some time with another woman on the weekends or what have you. You know, it's a really fascinating introspection on this idea of what it takes to make it in America. And I, especially in corporate America specifically. And I think that the that's a very honest reading. I think that it offers a lot of introspection and a lot of readings and analysis into Billy Wilder's specific direction of this film that he might not have even intended at the time. But for me, it just harkens back to this idea of paying your dues, having this capitalistic ideology in your mind that if you give more than 100%, even on the side, then somehow you are going to benefit from it. And honestly, I completely agree with you. I think that for a really long time, C.C. Baxter is on this trajectory to become the next Sheldrake. But fortunately, a character like Fran Kubelik exists in this narrative who is able to remind him of the stakes and what it means to be human, what it means to feel something. Because to be honest, she's also a victim of this capitalistic ideology. She is someone who works in this corporate business office in New York. And she becomes victim to this upper management man who feels like he is owed something, who has the opportunity to give back everything if he so chooses. And yet she feels she definitely does give everything. Not only does she offer, you know, I'm sure some of her job, but she offers her personal life. She offers her emotions, her mental health. And this is a man who can't even give her the word that he will eventually divorce his wife in order to be with her. And I think that that is at this kind of very interesting crux of humanity versus, you know, working America. It's, it's just such a fascinating reading. 
which is a great segue to get to the later part of this scene. So now they're in the office, Baxter's office, and this it's a cringeworthy scene in some ways because Baxter cannot figure out that she doesn't care about his stupid hat. And he's so full of himself of like, oh, I can get you a promotion. I can do all of this. And he just doesn't see her as a person. He doesn't see that she's hurting, that she does not want to be there right now, that she is just kind of like really dealing with her own stuff at that moment. And he can't, he doesn't have the emotional intelligence to recognize that. And then this culminates in one of the scenes turning points where I think it turns from kind of more of a workplace comedy with some romance to the romantic drama comedy that we've been talking about. I thought maybe I put in a word for you with Mr. Sheldrake, get you a little promotion. How would you like to be an elevator starter? I'm afraid there are too many girls around here with seniority over me. No problem. Why don't we discuss it sometime over the holidays? I can call you and pick you up. We have a big unveiling. Are you sure this is the right way to wear this? I think so. Here. You don't think it's tilted a little too much? I mean, after all, this is a conservative firm. I don't want people to think I'm an entertainer. What's the matter? Uh, the mirror, it's broken. Yes, I know. I like it that way. Makes me look the way I feel. So yeah, every time that happens in the movie, I kind of lose it uh, emotionally. <laughs> um, I don't know about you. Um, absolutely. I think uh, one of my favorite line readings from a movie is Shirley MacLaine as Frank Kublik saying, I know I like it that way. It makes me look the way that I feel. It's, oh, it's just so heartbreaking, especially with the sincerity with which that she says it as well as the matter of factness you know this is this this makes me look the way that i feel i'm a the inner text of that phrase is just i'm a broken person i'm completely broken i want the visages of myself that i see to represent how i actually feel on the inside it represents so much introspection so much emotional intelligence for that character which i do i have to give a little bit of credit to you know the writing for this film to billy wilder that that's a very profound thing for a woman to say in a film like that and it's said with without this kind of sweeping music without a lot of it's not the apex of the film even and it's it's heartbreaking it's heart-wrenching and it's presented in such a matter-of-fact way that completely represents how so many women working in corporate america had to hold it together and even when they felt broken inside they had to keep operating those elevators they had to keep being proficient secretaries keep those typing times up even when they were used and abused by their superiors who were men and just made to feel stuck in their positions which many of them unfortunately were but it's Gosh, it just layers so much. And I think that that's why it's it's also stood the test of time because we know that there are so many women still working in corporate America who are working jobs who just want to look in a broken mirror and say to themselves, this represents the way that I feel inside. When it's been 60 years since the apartment happened, we should be well beyond this point where women actually feel empowered in the workplace, especially in corporate America. And we're still not there yet. We still have so many Frank yeah. Kublik's out there. I was looking at, because uh, we were to talk about films that sort of can accompany this as a watch. And one of the ones that I considered was The Assistant, which came out just this mm. year. And how that film kind of speaks a lot to what you're saying. Really just what, it, what it, it's unbelievable how much hasn't changed in a lot of ways in these like workplace environments where men are able to basically feel empowered or entitled to other people's bodies constantly. Their bodies in terms of what they do um, physically, sexually, and emotionally for other men in the office. And what's crazy about this What's pretty strange about this movie is that if you look at other films around this time, you don't get a lot of stories or characters where women are in a position who they're more sympathetic for what they're going through in this situation. Usually when adultery was happening on screen in movies at this time, they were way more villainized or they were, you know, there is a moment where she attempts to commit suicide, but the film doesn't frame her as pathetic. It doesn't frame her as stupid or dumb for any of this. Instead, it shows her like 
really what she's going through is very profound and very terrible. And the manipulation that she went through is what drove her to this. And I thought that was very, very interesting to see in a film made in this time, especially by someone who, by all accounts, he did have Billy Wilder himself did have a very strained relationship with women in general. Um, He had his heart broken by a woman who, when he lived in Vienna, who reportedly he found out that she was a prostitute. This was a place where prostitution was legal. And people have said that ever since that happened, he felt very scarred by women. And, you know, women who have worked with him on set have alleged that, you know, he really just didn't understand women in a lot of ways. A lot of people credit IAL Diamond for sort of helping fill in those gaps in a lot of these scripts because that's an obvious disconnect with some of what we see here. But I do think that that kind of resonates with just the way he views women as like people he doesn't fully understand, but he seems to have some sort of. Um, I don't want to say sympathy for, but like he's trying to empathize or his story is trying to put them, you know, in a place that isn't just, you know, she had an affair. She did something bad. She had sex out of wedlock. She has to die, which was such a terrible trope in this time. And I really appreciate this movie for not going there. Um, of course, it falls into its own tropes, which we might bring up. But yeah, I, I every time I see this movie, that that's all I can think about is um, how refreshing that is to see for a movie from this era. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think I mentioned this very early at the beginning of this episode. I just feel like she of the characters is probably the most emotionally complicated. And it has to do with her circumstances. It has to do with how she handles a lot of those circumstances. And I, I completely agree with you. I think it's really profound. And I, I too understand that Billy Wilder had an incredibly strained relationship with a lot of the leading ladies of his films, a lot of the women who led his films. I mean, there are stories upon stories of how he treated Marilyn Monroe with some like it hot, which right. just yeah, we talked bit, about that. Yeah, absolutely abysmal. And no one deserved to be treated that way. I'm sure that that lent itself to a lot of the trauma that carried over throughout the rest of her career and into her very short life. Um, and I know for sure that Shirley MacLaine was a victim and definitely suffered at the trauma of dealing with that in, in the workplace, too, which is really fascinating considering that this is kind of a workplace romantic dramedy. Um, I feel like that's a whole other conversation analysis take for another time. But yeah, I just I've always loved Fran Kublik as a character. I think that she is one of the more emotionally intelligent. She's the most emo- emotionally intelligent character in this film. And I just, you know, I relate to so much of how she feels in terms of just kind of having to maintain this stagnation career wise, having to maintain the stagnation in her personal life in order to just, you know, continue on you know moving that elevator up and down it's it's just oh she's one of my favorite characters in cinema i just love her so much and it really i think i really give a lot of credit to the narrative of this film i really do feel like that that build-up really does lend itself to not look at fran kublik as a pathetic character when she does try to commit suicide it you really do feel for this woman and if you don't i i yeah i have some questions about your own emotional intelligence it's just it i just you know it's i i don't really have a lot of articulation for it but it's it's a, it's very powerful to see a woman just at the end of her ropes at the, at her last wits end, just going to that length because that's how much she cares about this man. That's how much she feels like she can't continue on in her life. And it's, that's how much she feels like she's been used and what else is she good for other than being used? It's it, there are so many layers to it. And I just feel like it's, it's, such a willful ignorance to just write it off is just her trying to kill herself because she can't be with the guy that she wants to be with. Like she knows, she knows that he's not good for her. Mm-hmm. And it points out that that's not how love works. And it's a much more, it's something that's filled with suffering. <laughs> and you get that sense, you know, you and I, I've, I've heard, I've seen you quote this so many times. I do the same. Why do people have to love people anyway? You know, I couldn't relate more to that question. It is a very difficult, 
aspect of human nature that we fall into the situation so often. And, you know, even in that scene in particular, I particularly noticed this time how she's not really talking to Baxter. She's talking to the camera. She's talking to the audience. Um, I feel like because she even mentioned she's from Pittsburgh. I think she's talking to you, Julia. <laughs> Maybe she might be. I mean, I just look at that scene. I love that line, too. It's it's one of my favorites. And I think that it's, you know, Shirley MacLaine delivers it so nonchalantly. But it's it's such a profound thing to say in a film from the 1960s. You know, why do people have to fall in love anyway? I mean, it's the stuff that movie magic was made of right. back in that time period. It's just why people went to the movies to be swept up in romance. And it's so it's so profound to see this heroine on the screen just kind of like schluff it off and just say, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get the draw. I don't mm -hmm. get what the point is. I was a schmuck who fell into it. I don't get it anymore. I just, I don't want it. It's, I, I love it. It sounds like you're kind of in the same boat where I am, where, you know, every time I watch this movie, it, it's like a chapter of my life or a different chapter of my life that I'm in the middle of. You know, I didn't start watching this movie once a year until the last few years because like it's it's one of those movies that became more seminal as I got older and as I revisited it. Um, one of the first times that happened was a few years ago. I was watching this on a plane of all places. And you're not going to believe this, Julia. I was on my way back from a Christmas vacation when I watched it. Um, how about that? But as we wind down, let's kind of just, you know, finish this out with some final thoughts on the movie in general. The last thing I want to bring up is the music that we kind of tease we would mention earlier. Just the sense that we first hear the score at the very beginning of the film, but then we hear it again, the, uh, the Adolf Deutsch score, which was actually adapted from existing music that Billy Wilder actually really liked. Now, this went on to completely overshadow the popularity of that music. It's actually pretty hard to find these days, but it's actually based off of something else. It's not very original in that sense. But it still fits the movie like a glove, mainly because Wilder had heard it before. And he specifically, it, it seems like he wrote the movie around the feeling the movie, the music evokes. But what I love is how uh, a scene earlier in the film, when Fran is going to the Chinese restaurant and she asks the piano player to play this song, there is like a little subplot going on there where that music actually represents the way she feels about Sheldrake. And he doesn't seem to hear it. And she has she brings him the record for Christmas and he just gives her a hundred bucks or whatever it is. And when we we start to hear the music more, it carries on like a new meaning. Not a lot of movies do that sort of thing to the point where even the main protagonist, Baxter, finds record and is like, this isn't mine. And it's sort of playing around with the idea of how do you start a new romance with someone when you have this very specific music of life like tied to another person and this film is so good at telling a story of how hard that is because most films don't they sort of just like gloss over it and are like well you know they have so much chemistry it's gonna overpower you know all of that but that's not really how this progresses there's actually like weeks go by or like at least days go by before the next thing happens it doesn't all happen within a few days like some of these movies do and i think that's what makes the film so special so that when you do finally get to the ending which i maybe we can play once we finish things out it just feels earned and it, it just feels like you really watched an important moment out of these two people's lives and means something and wasn't easy to get to. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I mentioned it before. I love the music from this movie. I I think that it really hits a lot of the emotional pinpoints that maybe not a lot of the dialogue lends itself to. Maybe the dialogue might be a little bit too vague or a little bit too whip smart for some people to keep up with sometimes. And I think that in that way, the music really lends itself to a lot of the emotional tension of a lot of scenes, especially the one that you brought up when Fran and Sheldrake go to the restaurant and she asks them to play that old tune or what have you. It's, it's, it's really pivotal. I think that the one scene that you previously played with the mirror in uh, Frank Kublik's compact, I think that that immediately goes to the crux of how that, how she's feeling internally. It's a really beautiful thing. And I mean, obviously this composer went on to win three Oscars, was nominated for a plethora of awards. So 
they know what they're doing. And this was just an early showing of the talent. They went on to do so much for Annie Get Your Gun and Oklahoma and a number of other movie musicals. So it's it just really speaks to the power of music. And I think that I don't think I would be wrong in saying that the apartment probably is a cue for some composers in terms of how to match mm-hmm. character introspection and their emotions to the music that's playing. Should we play the a clip from the final scene of the movie to wrap up our conversation? Let's do it. Let's <laughs> prove why this is a New Year's Eve movie. Oh, boy. Well, that said, so we get to the end of the film and uh, All the Acquaintance Be For God, that song is playing. All, all Lang Sign, of course. And, you know, there, there's this moment in the film where you think all is lost and Fran's with the wrong guy. But then Sheldrake, he messes up. He does the thing. He tells her what Baxter did quit his job and he told uh he told sheldrake basically you can't have my apartment anymore you can especially you can't put miss kubalek through that anymore i uh, forgot to mention by the way uh, i have a real fascination with the way this movie plays around with calling people by their last names and their first names and the formalness of it and i think it's pretty fascinating that's a discussion for another day um and it does kind of play into the themes of the movie of, are you a human being or are you just a title anyway and then she hears this from Sheldrake and disappears at the swell of the song. And then we see her running to Baxter's apartment. She thinks that he's committed suicide, which the film sort of like uh, builds up two times with his story of shooting himself over heartbreak. And then eventually we see him with putting a gun into a box. Um, but of course, he's okay. And then the two of them in the final moments of the film have this heart to heart. What about Mr. Sheldrake? I'm going to send him a fruitcake every Christmas. I love you, Miss Kubelik. Three. Queen. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. I mean, that's just movie magic, I guess, is the name for it. I, I think it might be. It might be the definition <laughs> of it. I'm not sure. God, I love the ending of that movie so much. And that's part of the reason why I will firmly stake my stance and die on the hill that this is a New Year's Eve movie because it presents so much hope. And what does a new year represent? Yes, hope, yes. A clean slate moving forward with so many inhibitions out the door and it happens on new year's eve they're singing old lang syne in the restaurant i mean how much better can you get than that and then <laughs> shirley mclean's line delivery of shut up and deal and a smile oh, oh just what a sparkle just the best just the best it's so good it's so good this movie is so good you guys uh, hopefully we've done our best to explain why we love the film so much, but let's end the show with a couple of recommendations. A film that you should watch after you watch The Apartment. Julia Tatey, what is the film that you chose for this one? Yeah, so this might actually come as a surprise to a couple people, but you know, in kind of the frame of the romantic dramedy, I really think that a good contemporary pairing with this movie would be Leslie Headland Sleeping with Other People, which stars Jason ah, great movie. and Alison Brie. It's such an underrated and good romantic comedy. And I really think that it fits into the space of romantic dramedy. And it really does kind of lend itself to a lot of the kind of character relationships that the apartment builds on you know Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis are these two main characters that you think oh maybe they'll get together they seem like you know they're both really messed up people they both really need to work on themselves they both have a lot going on but maybe eventually they'll they'll get together and that's kind of you know the same feeling that I feel like a lot of people who might not be familiar with the apartment will go into watching Fran Kublik and Cece Baxter being like these are two people who really have a lot going on in their lives individually, but they both seem so decent, so wholesome. Why wouldn't they get together in the end? So I feel <laughs> like sleeping with other people. It's a lot more funny. A lot of credit to people like Jason Mansukis, who is also in it. Amanda Peet, 
and Natasha Leone and Andrea Savage who give astonishing and such great supporting comedic performances in it. I mean, if not to watch it for Allison Brie and Jason Sudeikis, watch it for those four performances because they are absolutely hilarious. Um, And Leslie Headland's, you know, direction of a contemporary romantic comedy. I think it's really sweet. It's very wholesome. It's really great. But I also really think that it lends itself a lot to those kind of introspective emotions that lend itself in the apartment. And you also get a very strange Adam Scott performance, uh, who you wouldn't expect him to be the Sheldrake of that movie, but I guess that's the case. Yeah, absolutely emotionally manipulative. Actually, in terms of Sheldrake versus Adam Scott's character in Sleeping With Other People, oh, what's his name again? I know that they say it so many times in that movie. too, And I'm I'm looking it up right now because it's going to bother me if I don't. Um, Adam Scott's character in that movie is named Matthew Pachisnik, I'm pretty sure. Something like that. Something like that where it's really annoying and frustrating and it lends itself to what the character is actually like. Um, Yeah, it has to be, right? Uh, I don't remember it. I've seen the film twice, but yeah, I don't remember what his name was in the movie. Um, But that kind of makes me think about something we didn't talk about with The Apartment was, um, first of all, love the neighbor characters and how it's kind of like a precursor to Three's Company in a lot of ways, how they have Matthew Sobacek. Sobacek, okay. His name is Matthew Sobacek, Mr. Sheldrake, Dr. Matthew Sobacek. I mean, it lends itself to the same kind of... I don't know where I got Pachisnik from. If there are any listeners with the last name Pachisnik... <laughs> yeah, fill in that blank. I really apologize. <laughs> I really um, apologize. I have no idea where that came from, but it wasn't because of you. I promise. <laughs> yes. Uh, very memorable movie when it comes to names. Uh, both of these movies, but especially The Apartment. Like There are a lot of Jewish characters. There's some subtext there you can read of uh, just sort of seeing the the Jewish story as it relates to the corporate ladder and the American dream, all kinds of good stuff we could talk about. But alas, we have to end it. My recommendation would actually be a film from a filmmaker who uh, long said that he was always inspired by Billy Wilder's movies and The Apartment in particular. And so I'm going to recommend a film by Cameron Crowe, the 1996 romantic comedy dramas, I like to think of it, Jerry Maguire, which Cameron Crowe oh, wrote, directed, and produced. It's a great movie. Tom Cruise, Cuba Gooding Jr., Renee Zellweger, and Regina King. It similarly has lots of quotable dialogue, as I'm sure a lot of listeners are already thinking of the dialogue right now. But yeah, there there is another film about a guy on the wrong trajectory, right? Where his job kind of encompasses who he is and this kind of dishonesty that he partakes in. And the film, of course, brings in the wild card the the single mother played by renee zellweger who comes into his life and uh, kind of leads him on a different path a, a path where he becomes i would say a mensch and you know i love a lot of cameron crowe films even the bad ones and um, jerry Maguire, definitely one of the better ones i've also thought about recommending almost famous but i think jerry Maguire is probably the closer cousin to this film um and if you're going to watch a cameron crowe film you got to start with jerry Maguire, i think and also to give um a big shout out to kelly preston who i feel like we yes. lost way too yeah. soon very sad. Um, she had so many incredible performances, and Jerry Maguire was absolutely one of her most astonishing. When she tears down Tom Cruise in that movie, mm-hmm. it's an all-timer. Absolute all-timer. I think that might be the first movie I ever saw Kelly Preston in. So, uh, yeah, definitely leaves an impression. And uh, similarly, a long movie. We never talked about how the apartment is over two hours, which uh, I always find fascinating because that's, that was very rare for those days. But we don't want this podcast to last over two hours, so we are going to call it at that. Julia Tatey, thank you so much for talking with me about one of what I believe is one of the greatest movies of all time. I can't wait for some people listening to check it out for the first time because of your explanation and breakdown of it really appreciate you coming on the show to share your thoughts absolutely i'm so glad that we were able to come to the conclusion that this is a new year's movie it always has been it always will be (laughs) you get the last word on that (laughs) yeah i'm just so happy that we were able to identify what yuletide holiday people should be watching this movie around